Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, April 27th, 2016. It's time to destroy more dream destiny thingies. It's not a biblical doctrine, by the way. The book of Ecclesiastes demonstrates that oh so clearly if you pay attention to what it actually says. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of really crazy things being said out there. We take the time to Slow down, open up our Bible, and compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group study curriculum we should be studying instead of the Word of God to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says. Now, once a week here at Fighting for the Faith, oftentimes, most of the time on Wednesday, we do our light episode. This allows me to take care of some pastoral stuff. Um, and uh, what, we're, what we've been doing is working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, listening to a series of lectures presented by Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. He's still in Chapter 8, and this is the next installment, so let's just get right to it. Good morning, everyone. We left off in chapter 8. We had looked at the uh, first half of chapter 8 last week in Ecclesiastes. We had um, the overarching discussion seems to be one of wisdom and the superiority of wisdom to foolishness. And yet the whole thing is couched or umbrellaed by uh, the inability of wisdom to grasp everything. Do you recall Solomon's case in point? Women. Okay. So, my wisdom can know very many things. My wisdom can grow. My wisdom can comprehend you know, concepts like infinity, our, our minds, our wisdom, it's amazing things, and then you simply look at the woman across the coffee table from you and you go, that's the end of my wisdom. <laughs> 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 uh, 
All right. Now, um, Solomon is going to use this then as his case in point that wisdom itself is limited. So this will take us all the way back to the beginning of the book when he more or less introduced the toils. And do you recall what the toils are? The toils are the way you live your life or the chief way you choose to live your life. And these are broad categories. It's not like you just have to choose one, but people tend to emphasize one or two as opposed to all of them. So you've got the pursuit of wisdom, right? I want to know more and more and more. You've got the pursuit of pleasure. I want to experience. I want to do. I want to see the world. I want to taste the foods. Okay? You have the pursuit of greatness. I want to build great things. Monuments, institutions, programs. Okay, whatever it is. Um, Then philanthropy is another toil. I want to spend my life pouring out my life for the good of others. And the last and perhaps most surprising thing to be labeled a toil is religion itself. I want to live my life better understanding and serving God. Now, all of these toils, Solomon is going to ultimately say are meaningless and vain. The all is vanity. Now, what he's been doing is picking out a couple of the toils, specifically wisdom, that's the last section, and saying, you know, wisdom is a toil, and ultimately it's vain, and here's why, but it it sure is better to be wise in this life than foolish. And yet, when the tsunami comes, does it care if you're wise or foolish? No. When the earthquake hits, does it stop and ask, you know, "Eh, what's your IQ? No. When disaster strikes, you know, and cancer picks a target, it doesn't stop and find out, you know, your academic credentials or your wisdom or lack thereof. It's all indiscriminate. And so in the end, it's all vain. Um, Death comes to the wise and the foolish alike. All right. So in other words, what we're doing is we're getting the the archetype, the structure of Solomon's way of thinking. It's going to be very important for the next section. So wisdom itself as a toil, as a way of life, is much superior to foolishness or madness or whatever else, and yet, in and of itself, wisdom is going to lead to a dead end. The grave, ultimately, but then little dead ends along the way, like the more you know something, the more you realize you don't know something. Like, why can't I figure out women? Okay? Um, these are that's Solomon's case in point. So these are the sorts of things, right, that uh, frustrate wisdom as a toil, even though it's a superior toil to foolishness. Likewise, now we are going to see in the next, uh, you know, at the, at the rest of chapter eight and uh, into chapter nine, we're going to see the eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, what we would call the toil of pleasure. And Solomon is going to say, in the same way he says, don't be foolish, be wise. His theme is going to be, you know, don't walk around with a mopey frown on your face and you know, be the world's biggest grump. Be happy, be joyful, be joyful in your work, eat, drink, and be merry, etc. But as he tells us that, it's better to eat, drink, and be merry than not. He's going to point out that eat, drinking, and being merry is also meaningless and a toil that ends in death and ultimately you look at that toil and you kind of have to say 
Well, it's better than another way, but does it fulfill my life? No. All right, so that's what we're going to see in this section. Now, going back to the wisdom paradigm for just a minute, we saw him uh, sort of give practical advice, but almost lament its necessity in the early verses of chapter 8. Do you recall how he talks about how a wise person will conduct himself in the presence of one who is an authority? Yeah. So there's a way of wisdom that says, you know, if you're dealing with a king or a tyrant, right, um, then this is how to behave. This is the actions to do, the thoughts to have, the way to live uh, in a profitable way. But of course, what's infuriating about that is that you have to do those things in the first place. Particularly if and when the king or the leader or the ruler, as is often the case, is an idiot. You are wise, they are an idiot, and yet you have to act wisely so this idiot won't lop off your head. So Solomon's going to tell you that this is how to do it, and yet all throughout the thing is a lament that you have to do it in the first place, and the world's this way in the first place. Okay. Um, if you look at uh, verse 6 with me, this is where it kind of all comes to a head of chapter 8. For there is a time and a way for everything... Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. So no matter how wise you are, you cannot predict what's going to happen the very next moment. For who can tell him how it will be? The answer is no one. Verse 8, No man has power to retain, again, whether you think of this as the spirit, as in the soul, or the wind itself, you have no control over nature. Either way is acceptable. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. There is no discharge from war, meaning you can't get out of this thing. And if you decide to say, ah, well, to hell with it, I'll just be wicked like everyone else, that's not going to deliver you either. Verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. And that's a reflection back on the nature of government and the fact that you have to be, you have to watch your back when dealing with people who are in authority over you. So all of this uh, is vanity, is meaningless, and is rendered meaningless by these facts. Namely, uh, that a man has no power over what's to come immediately in the future, that a man has no power or control over the world or the things around him, and that man has ultimately no power, of course, over the day of death. So that renders us pretty impotent, whether you're wise or not. Right? All the wisdom in the world can't save you from these things. And that's Solomon's point. There's the limit set. All the wisdom in the world can't change the fact that in the present ordering of things, a man has power over another man to his hurt. Right? Okay, then we're going to go into the new material. Anything uh, before we leave this discussion of wisdom and uh, go on a little bit? into another topic, sort of this idea of pleasure, this idea of eat, drink, and be merry. 
Any questions on what we've covered or what I've mentioned today? All right. Let's go into the new material. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, meaninglessness. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So what Solomon's saying in his wisdom? How ought punishment in the world or in the government work? Quickly. Quickly. Because the nature of punishment isn't, oh, you murdered someone, let me slap your hand. That was naughty. Now sit and time out for the rest of your life. The nature of punishment is, in the first place, deterrence. So that one who is guilty of great wickedness is punished. Why? As a deterrent to that sort of behavior that we would all see. And you know, so let me let me ask you this question. Um, if the next rapist were drawn and quartered, I think you know what that means, on national television, what do you think would happen to the number of rapes in the next few days? If a rapist within a week was tried, convicted, and executed, what on earth would people think about doing crime? They would think twice. They would think twice. Okay. This is actually a much wiser way of doing capital punishment. At least if you take Solomon. So that it becomes a deterrent so that you don't have to fool around with it and do it wrong and muddle it and do it more and have the whole thing a big hulking mess. I don't know, something like the American justice system. But rather you just do it quick. Are mistakes going to be made? Yep, sorry, people die. Are do innocent people get killed? Yep, sorry. But what are we going to do for the greater good of society? A few innocent are going to have to die along the way so that the great wickedness of humanity can be staved off and deterred. All right, well, you can take or leave that. It's certainly not the position of the Roman Catholic Church or many other Christians, but I think it is the position of Solomon. He He laments that a sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. You have to remember, it's a perfectly biblical system of justice for the king, like David, to hear the case and simply point to his general and say, and he walks over and hacks him to pieces. That might be uh, over and against our American sensibilities, but that is the nature of biblical justice. And again, the key is that it is done speedily. So here's the thing. I saw the wicked buried. Well, that should be good, right? My goodness. Blessed subtraction. The world's a better place. 
I saw the wicked buried. And then here's the first hint that things aren't the way they should be. They used to go in and out of the holy place. (laughs) So they were wicked, and yet they had the facade of being good. And they were praised in the city where they had done such things. Both wickedness and going to church. They have a good reputation among them. But what is God's sentence for them ultimately? The grave. And yet, here's the problem. This whole thing, them lying in the grave, them being praised in their life and after their life, this whole thing is screwed up because the sentence against their evil, their wickedness, is not executed speedily. And therefore, everyone else says, ah, it's okay, let's be exactly like them. Look, they're praised by men, they go to church, they do this other stuff, whatever. Now, this is, uh, needless to say, not sitting well with Solomon because he calls it a vanity. Now, he's going to build on this, on to verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Okay? So we have an interesting thought here, and if we ended here, it would be like your, your typical Sunday school lesson. But with Solomon, there's always more. So keep these words in mind. The sentence is not executed speedily, and over and against this, He is simply asserting that, well, even though what I see with my eyes is injustice, the wicked are praised instead of punished, those who should be punished immediately are not, even though that's what I see with my eyes, okay, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, and it's not going to go well for those who don't. Okay, that's his argument. Which sounds just so straightforward and wonderful. Be good, because even if the law isn't watching you, God is. Great. Straightforward. Sunday school lesson. Except Solomon goes on. Uh, the idea here, by the way, is just a little bit... At verse 13... Uh, talking about the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. The idea is a lengthening shadow. You know, as the sun sets, the shadow stretches. Not going to happen for the wicked person because he does not fear before God. Except, verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. What has Solomon just done? He's basically said that God's justice is an article of faith. Because what I see with my eyes is injustice. People praising wicked people and their sentence not coming upon them quick enough, so the whole human race is misled into their kind of wickedness, 
right? Yet I know, I know that in the end, God is judge and God is there and God's going to get the bad guys and help the good guys. Okay, I know that. And yet, in time and space, in this world, with my eyes wide open, I see the opposite. I see examples of wicked people being blessed, seemingly by God, and good people being cursed, seemingly by God. Okay, now this is the vanity of suffering. We can't figure it out. It's the end of wisdom, and ultimately it's going to be the check against the toil of pleasure as well. The toil of wisdom and the toil of pleasure come to an end in that there is suffering and you can't make sense out of it. How, how can... Uh, a loving and all-powerful God allow the suffering that happens to happen. And how can He do it in such a way that is manifestly unjust to us? Right? And rather than answer that, Solomon leaves it hanging. Frankly, the whole Bible leaves it hanging. It's a jagged edge. It's a tension. It's the blade of the knife. It's, that's what it is. And all and Christian apologists for 2,000 or more years have tried to file off that jagged edge, have tried to make it all make sense, have tried to tuck it in the scabbard, have tried to hide it away, and it's all been futile. God doesn't want to be found or discovered that way. This is what Luther calls the hiddenness of God. And suffering would be maybe his greatest, certainly his most obscuring cloak that he hides himself in. He hides himself in this, that when we see suffering and try to perceive who God is through that suffering, we come up only with confusion and drawing a blank. Right? Why on earth does he allow wicked people to prosper? Why on earth does he allow good people to suffer? Why on earth do infants die in the womb, out of the womb, terrible deaths? And then wicked men run all over the world cutting people's head off, heads off. Why? Why, why, why? And though Christian theologians have tried to answer, the Bible never does, and in fact the Bible won't. Because God does not want to be found that way. The hiddenness of God. He's hidden himself from, we cannot figure him out. Now, why would God hide himself in this way? Because God wants to reveal himself and make himself known in the person of his son. That is God revealed. The revelation of God is God in human flesh. Uh, John puts it this way in 1 John. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. The love of God was shown among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Right? What does that mean? That means that if you go looking for the love of God or a God who is loving, apart from Christ, you're not going to find Him. You're going to find a God who is one moment loving, right? 
blessing you and sending rain and food and crops. And then you're going to find a God who is the next moment, and for no apparent reason, your enemy. Now, Job would be the archetype of this, remember? Faithful Job. He and God are like this. Everything's going great. He's blessed. And then while the reader gets to see behind the scenes this whole dialogue between Satan and God, and God's, Satan, remember, says Job wouldn't be so faithful if you let him suffer a little more, and God was like, go for it. We get to know that as the reader. Job doesn't. So as Job experiences it, God is, he is faithful to God, he loves God, God is good to him, the world is right and ordered, and suddenly hell and curse and suffering and death come upon him in the day. And now what? What is he to think of God? Okay. It's just that ambiguity that we find in suffering where God is good and evil and just and unjust, and we cannot sort him out, who he is, nor can we find a loving God. In fact, the ultimate and resounding answer from God for, to each one of us is death. Which, no matter how, how many ways we try to make this pleasant or write silly poems about it or celebrate the life that was lived, death itself is ugly, hideous curse. That's what it is. If the morticians didn't work their magic, well, heck, even if they do, you still see death for what it is. And that on final assessment in the theology of Ecclesiastes and the theology of reality, when a creator makes a creature, and then the end of that creature is that ugly, that is the creator saying, no, no, you will no longer exist in this way. No, that body will never do another thing against me. It is a divine no. So ultimately, when we look at God without Christ, we see with Solomon a God who is fickle, a God who we can't understand, a God who brings blessings and curses with apparently no rhyme or reason. Whether you love him or hate him, it doesn't much matter. You could hate his guts, and he might still dump blessings upon you. Or you could worship and serve him, and he might dump curses upon you. And that's what we're left with. Hidden, ambiguous, unknowable. And then God reveals Himself to us in this way. And this is John's point. In this, the love of God. Where are you going to find the love of God? Nowhere else for certain but here. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Was shown among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. So it is only by looking at the cross of Jesus that I see God's love and know His love for certain. So whenever my experiences of God are contrary to that love, right? I mean, if God has brought terrible suffering upon me, like Job, then, and I'm doubting God's love then the place to turn is not inside. Well, maybe I've done something to deserve this. You know? The place to turn is the cross. Despite and over against all this stuff that's happening to me and going on in my life, all this suffering that is obviously from the hand of God, 
Despite all of that, I know that He loves me and I know that He is loving toward me. I know that He is for me in the person of Jesus. Okay, Because in Jesus is the love of God made manifest among us. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lecture on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8 with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway. Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me. Day one. Today is my first day of the Emmaus Walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day two. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day three. I think I figured out what I've been doing wrong. 
I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I've brought entirely. Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until... Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out, and still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar. Day 14. Today, my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds. I just barely escaped, but I'm going to have to start foraging for my own food. I can only hope that I find my way back. Day 34. Today, I came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42. I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus Walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus Walk walk is a trap. If your church even so much as suggests the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just said it and then died. Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, have you ever heard of any of the mega pastors doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. <laughs> Maybe the world would be better off if they did. <laughs> this is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, 
I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheap O'Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheap O'Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor is uh, one who treats, teaches about dream destiny and purpose and things like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount that you pick. That's right. There's four ranks in our crew, and it's based upon your monthly commitment. Uh, Powder Monkey is the lowest rank at $9.95 a month. Gunner's made after that at $24.95. Master Gunner at $49.95 and Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us, by the way. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution or specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, Zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support. We truly, honestly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's uh, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rohde. So as we're walking through life and we're suffering and we're going, what gives, God? What gives? I pray and I pray and you won't take this thing away. What gives? I've shaped up my life. And this thing won't go away. What gives? I've, tried, I've read all the books and done all the little 10-step programs. What gives? And the answer is, I love you, and I have demonstrated that, made that manifest to you in the person of my son. Right, so as we go through our life, then, is as close as suffering is to us, there Jesus is. Does that make sense? 
So that as you experience suffering and the conflict of how could God do this? Why is this happening? The intention is so that Jesus is as close to you as your suffering. Again, not in just this sort of sappy way of like, oh, Jesus is suffering with you. But, in, but specifically that this is God's assurance of love even in the midst of the storm. Even in the midst of the suffering. The assurance of God's love is Christ Jesus. Remember when Paul lists all those bad things and then he says, in these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us? Right? In these things. Not by getting taken out of these sufferings as if that would be a definitive proof of God's love because it wouldn't. That would only be one more notch in the column on, well, maybe God's a little bit better than He is worse. Maybe He's a little bit more good than He is evil. Right? Paul says, forget all that. In these things, in the midst of these things, we are more than conquerors because we know that Christ loves us. All right. So, the answer to the hidden God is Christ. And here's the mistake we've made as 21st century American Christians. We have taken God away from suffering. And in removing God from suffering, why does suffering come? Myself, human beings, the devil, but God? No, not God. We want God to be exonerated. Now, in so doing, we've separated God from suffering. Right? Now, suffering is just this thing on its own. And maybe God is afar, and maybe He'll help, or maybe He won't. But we've slipped right back into the old paradigm, the old way of thinking, that we can sort of figure out who God is on the basis of what happens to us. All right. So, the opposite of that is that verse that we read earlier. If you go back to uh, chapter 7, verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Even the day of adversity. So when you realize that God is the one who causes suffering, then, then for the Christian, suffering is God driving us to Christ. And if God is in suffering, and Christ is as near as our suffering, there we have the two words. The word of death and the word of life. The word of ambiguity and uncertainty and the word of certainty. It's like death is the Creator's no. But remember what Paul writes? Christ Jesus is God's yes. God's yes. The Creator's yes to you, yes to your life, yes to your existence is Christ Jesus. Okay? So what Solomon's doing for us is hacking down any attempt of figuring out God apart from Christ. And the study of religion is nothing but that. It's nothing but one generation after another of human beings trying to figure out how on earth God works and trying to manipulate God. Right? If we live according to this certain code of ethics, right? Then maybe God will be happy with us. If we paint our faces with warthog blood, maybe God will be happy with us. Right? If we don clothing that shows nothing but our eyes, maybe God will be happy with us. 
If we sacrifice a hundred bulls, maybe he'll be happy. How about 10,000? He'll be super happy. So the whole idea of religion, because of suffering, because of the existence of bad things happening, religion is born. Religion is necessary. And the whole idea, the whole premise of religion is to manipulate God or gods. Either by your behavior, by your dress, by your ceremonies, by your sacrifices, whatever you can possibly dream up. And that's the history of religion. Trying to manipulate God. Now something else happens. Because if God can't, or gods, can be manipulated by humans, then who's really in control? Humans. And so God becomes something out there that is an ingredient in my life. And I want certain things. I want rain to fall. I want crops. You know, I want luxuries. I want a house. I want whatever. Whatever I want. The means to getting that is God. So I need to do the manipulative thing that I'm supposed to do to get God to give me what I want. In other words, God is an ingredient in my life. This then is why, and don't, by the way, this whole paradigm still works even if you call it Christian. So, this is why then Solomon also calls religion and paints such a negative view of this God and this arrangement throughout his text. He call, in the end, <clears throat> religion itself is Vanity, the all is vanity, is meaningless. Because it doesn't give you the answer. Because the whole human race is just variations on a theme. So nothing will do. Not that God, not that religion, nothing. And that's why religion then is also a vanity. Because God is a mystery. Now in Christ Jesus, this is how huge this thing is, the Christ event. In Christ Jesus we finally have a definitive answer from God. A definitive word from God. Now in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. So if we want the ambiguity to end, if we want to put an end to all religion, that is, trying to manipulate God by behaviors, virtues, sacrifices, ceremonies, then the only alternative is Christ. That's the only alternative. And only in Christ do, is the love of God made manifest among us. So that in Christ there is no condemnation. Right? Which means that as you're suffering, you realize that this suffering I'm going through is not God's condemnation. Why? Because of Christ. That's how I know it. God is love. Even when you're Job, and he's ripped your family away from you, and your stuff away from you, and you're sitting on a dung heap, scratching your sores, and there's no end, and even your wife comes up and says, why don't you just curse God and die, okay? You can still cling to God's love when you cling to Christ Jesus. And ultimately, that's what Job is doing. He is clinging to God's promises, clinging to who God is. And God makes that manifest, as John says, among us in the flesh and blood of His Son. So as near to you as your suffering is, that's how near Christ is. And if you separate God from your suffering, then you lose that. 
And if you lose that, then you lose the nearness of Christ. But when you see God in your suffering, and it's a difficult thing, and it's a challenging thing, all of a sudden your whole life, every moment of it becomes theological, and your whole life, every moment of it becomes an encounter with Christ, who enters your life and says, despite what you're feeling, despite what you're seeing, despite what you're going through, God still loves you. Still gracious to you. Still merciful to you. Okay. So to be fair, Solomon doesn't give us any of that Jesus stuff. That's not his point. His point is to prepare us for that. And so what we see Solomon wrestle with here is the futility the vanity that takes place on earth, that righteous people get what the wicked deserve and wicked people get what the righteous deserve. He repeats it. I said that this also is vanity. It's the end of verse 14 of chapter 9. I'm sorry, chapter 8. Thank you. Chapter 8. Okay. So what do you do now, Solomon gives us an answer. How do you live in this screwed up world? And it is screwed up. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Okay, so... What is Solomon himself, without the revelation of Christ, told us? The world sucks, and it's not a just place. And the wickedness of man is off the charts, and only getting worse. Should you mope about it? Cry about it? Should you get depressed about it? Should you think too much about it? No. You should get a nice glass of wine. You should get a big juicy steak. And you should sit down and look at your family and look at the things God has given you and be joyful. Okay? Now that's great, isn't it? But is that an answer? <laughs> I mean, is that it? Okay, so that's what, that's what we're going to explore with Solomon. If Solomon's saying that's it or not, and you already know the answer. Okay, so joy. And, you know, I think, I think that's an important thing because we've done a lot of talking about, um, you know, taking up your cross and following me, living life as a theologian of the cross, having your life conformed to the image of the crucified Christ, pouring yourself out for the sake of others, being trampled, being spat on, being hate, hated, being poor in spirit, all these things, right? And yet, um, what that does to us in our minds is paints a wholly negative picture as if, well, these things are drudgery and uh, depressing and sadness. On the contrary, they can be joy. Now, it's not a superficial joy. It's not joy as the world gives it. It's not puppy dog kisses and smiles and balloons, right? But it is a deeper joy. A deeper joy. Okay. The joy of a woman who is going through the labor pains knowing the child's about to be born. All right? It's a deeper joy. Um, but I want to take this opportunity to highlight the fact that the cruciform life and taking up our cross and following Jesus, you know, it doesn't mean happy, clappy joy, that's for sure. It doesn't even mean joy the way this world gives it. But it is still joy. It's a very different kind of joy. It's the kind of joy that he himself has. Okay. 
So he calls us in to share his joy, that our joy may be full. Um, Christ says, I came to give peace, not as the world gives peace. I think the same thing is true for his joy. Come to give joy, but not as the world gives joy. So we live our lives, eat, drink, be merry, be joyful, even in the face, contrary to all the opposite facts, that this life is misery and sucks. So that's what we have so far. That's what we have so far. Let's break there and see. Are there any questions or comments before we get right back into the text? David, let's get a question. Just a comment that it's interesting that Solomon laments injustice, but if anyone were in a position to do something about it, it would be he. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's Solomon's own impotence. I mean, even as the king, right? His own impotence to change the way things are. Yeah. Gordon. A couple of things. Uh, One, uh, I find it interesting talking about the vanity of religion that the uh, blurb on the cover of the bulletin for the last couple of weeks has talked about monastic vows and how it's not the right way to go. Yeah. Yeah. and uh, then uh, second, um, I, I think this is, you know, God doesn't want to be formulaic. More, most religions out there in the world, you do X, Y, and Z, and God gives you A, B, and C. Um, taking it to something people have pointed out in the New Testament, um, how do you cure blindness? You know, if, if Christ always did this, you know, spit in the mud and whatever, did it always the same way, people would latch onto that and say, oh, this is what we need to do. Yeah. But it, it, it isn't that way. Yeah, yeah, right. Right, exactly. And that, that has to do with the, dire- the nature of the revelation of God. And we would, you know, by analogy, we would say it's directional. I mean, if, if God lays out that this is how you please me, right, then the direction to please him is our action to him, right, to see how pleasing we are. That's, I think, the system, the formula. Whereas what God does is different. It's, it's in the paradigm of grace, which isn't systematic or formulaic, nor does it ask you to do anything, but rather it comes and gives. And just as, as grace is, uh, it takes on multiple forms and is unpredictable. That's the nature of grace. It's the nature of gift. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the, uh, the bulletin covers that we do is we pick a part of the Book of Concord, a section of the Book of Concord, and put it on the front of the bulletins. It cycles through it. Um, the section we recently had was on uh, uh, monasteries and the, relig- the so-called religious life. And the Lutheran uh, reformers see this as an intrusion of the old paganism into what, Christ, what has been revealed in Christ. Namely, that if you go off and live your life other than the life God has given you to live, that that is somehow more God-pleasing. That then you are a religious. That you are a step above the rest. And the Lutheran reformers reject that because they see that as yet another attempt to manipulate God. Among other things. All right. um, I see a hand over here. I don't know if there are any more before you head this way. Okay. David, did you have a question or a comment? Yeah. Just one second. Where I live, I've been uh, smoking tobacco, so the, the group wouldn't uh, harm me and uh, be mad at me. 
and uh, when they go out and uh, do do a crime, and I tell them, uh, is that a good thing that I don't take up tobacco to uh, please them, or just uh, hang around and get in trouble and still take up their threats, even though it's the wrong thing for them to get to uh, get serious out of people at mall. Yeah, um, don't don't do anything that uh, people want you to do, um, because people are stupid. So instead of trying to please people, right, seek what pleases God. That would be the wisdom of the scriptures. If it pleases God and pleases people, wonderful. But let's let our pursuits and our decisions be made by what pleases God instead of man. Okay, so let's uh... all right, we've got joy. This is, this is great. Let's keep going if we can. Do a few more verses. Um, if you ever get opportunity to read like chapter eight and chapter nine on your own, just do it. It's just straight through, I mean, it's fantastic. It'll have you going, what? All right, verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do anyone's eyes sleep. I love it. Haven't you ever stopped to meditate on how crazy that is? The alarm clock goes off before the sun comes up and you go to bed when? It goes, you know, the alarm clock goes off in the dark and then when do you go to bed? Yeah, long after. So you're out of tune with nature itself. And uh, as he's lamenting here, um, by way of exaggeration, neither day nor night do anyone's eyes see sleep. So it's out of tune. We're we're out of harmony. We're laboring far too much. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Okay? In other words, men are constantly busy, and God has set the bounds such that wisdom fails to find out everything that is done under the sun, how it all works, why it all works this way, etc. In other words, he's painting a picture again of futility. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Okay? And that is, again, an echo of the, of the whole theme of this book. However much man may toil in seeking. So you want wisdom and wisdom and wisdom, there's always going to be something that you don't know. So you want pleasure and pleasure and pleasure, never going to be satisfied. So you want to build great things and great things and great things, someone's going to build greater. Okay? Someone's going to put a longer antenna on top of their building, and now you, don't, now you have the world's second tallest building. Right. Okay, you toil and toil and toil in religion, and it doesn't seem to pay off. You give your life in self-sacrifice to others, and they waste their lives. All right. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. That is, he will not get done with his toil and say, that's it, I'm satisfied. But rather, he'll always want more, and he'll not find the end of that. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Okay. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. 
Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Now this is, a, I think, the best interpretation of this is if you look at the whole context and the transition of thoughts, the righteous and the wise, everything they do, are in the hand of God. But how is He going to judge them? Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. In other words, does God love a man or hate a man? It's really hard to tell because the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. You know, if if really good people, really good stuff happened to them, and all the people living on mansions on the hills were really moral people, then you could say, aha, aha, this is how God works. He loves the righteous man, he hates the wicked man. Okay, But as it is, love and hate are before us, but we don't know. And we can't know, because the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. And here's Solomon's further critique of religion. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Again, does God love this person, hate this person? It's all hidden, only to be revealed in the person of Christ. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is, is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So human beings, for all their pretense of sanity, Every last one of us is actually mad. It's one of the bizarre things, but we'll realize that uh, on the other side. (laughs) Verse 4, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. It's like, um, what what is that movie, the Stephen Hawking movie, what's it called? Yeah, the theory of everything. And remember the famous line in the trailers, uh, when there is life, there is hope, or something like that. Where there is life, there is hope. Okay, He's right, and Solomon agrees. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay? Where there is life, there is hope. So enjoy it while you have it. <laughs> because pretty soon there's no hope. <laughs> For the living know that they will die, verse 5, but the dead know nothing. Remember, Solomon actually says that's preferable. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. So that's also an injustice, because whether a wicked man lies dead, or a good man lies dead, that's the end, right? The wicked guy ends up getting the same payment as the good guy. And the good guy doesn't get his reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. No matter how hard we try or think we can keep people alive in our hearts, keep people alive in our memories, we can't. Ultimately, the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the earth. 
which is a big, huge limitation on everything. Right? The end of your life, your vote is over. What you loved, what you hated, what you tried to push forward, what you tried to do, it's all over. And there's no more. Now, you're going to say, well, what about heaven? <laughs> right? He's not doing theology under the S-O-N. He's doing theology under the S-U-N. Right? There is no heaven. <laughs> Just because Solomon's whole paradigm is, look, look at what your eyes see. And speak truthfully about it. Speak wisely about it. Then, you see very starkly how important heaven suddenly is. And the resurrection of our bodies. How important that is. You don't stop and pause and consider what if there was no such thing. How bleak the world would be. So without rescue in Christ, this is how it would be, and that's all there would be. Now we have rescue in Christ. So we have further reward. So we have life. So we have resurrection of the body. So we have God's love. But apart from that revelation of Christ, what do we have? Death. And that's it. And a God who we could never once figure out whether He loved us or hated us. Alright, so there is no solution to the question of why we suffer other than to turn to Christ and see that God loves us and makes us conquerors in these things through Christ who loves us. Okay, I want to get a little further if I can. Okay, verse 3 is the key. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. The hearts of the children of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after, they go to the, and after that they go to the dead. He who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So here's his advice. Go eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Really? Let your garments be always white, which is hard Hard enough in our day and age of electronic washers, right? Let alone in that world. So, a white robe is a luxury. It goes with the image of feasting. Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Okay? Joy, feast, indulge. Okay? Everything's going swimmingly, isn't it? Verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your meaningless life. <laughs> That's why you got to read this whole section just straight through because it is just, it'll blow you away. Okay. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun because that is your portion. Remember, we, that's reflecting earlier verse we've read where that's clearly not a good thing. In life and in your toil, whatever you toil at, wisdom, pleasure, religion, philanthropy, greatness, whatever, in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun, 
Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shale to which you are going. Everything goes swimmingly to we're all drowning in the abyss. In a few verses. That's the nature of Ecclesiastes too. It is, like next to Revelation, it is probably the easiest book to mess up. Because if you just pull a verse out of context, it looks great. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Let your garments be white. Let your head be anointed with oil. Love the days with your wife. The end. Perfect. No, do all, because it's the end of your meaningless life. And in the end, you're going to Sheol. And there's nothing you can do about it. Alright, so what has Solomon done again for us now? In the same way previously, as he said, look, it's preferable to have wisdom than foolishness. Even though the world is an asinine and foolish place, it's still better to have wisdom than be foolish. At the end, wisdom isn't going to fulfill you and it isn't going to solve your biggest problems. Here too, even though the world is an unjust and asinine place and God can't be figured out, have joy. Eat, drink, be merry. Get married, love the person you're with, but then realize you're going to die. So just as wisdom has its limit, so also the joyful life, the pursuit of pleasure, eat, drink, and be merry, get a good wife, get a good house, all of that ends in vanity, meaninglessness, nothing. So again, don't be fulfilled by that. A few weeks ago I mentioned a friend of mine when we were young, we talk about the game, okay? The game that you play to please adults, to get stuff on your resume, to get into a good school, to get into a good job, right? And the problem is, nobody actually wins the game. That's the problem. We didn't see it then at the time. But as you play the game and get ahead and collect more and more Monopoly money, you know, at the end you die. And at the end, maybe it was worth it, maybe it wasn't. Maybe you got rich and were joyful. Maybe you got rich and weren't joyful. There is no winning. And so whatever your pursuit, your toil is, realize there is no winning. That's it. That's the end. Game over. Whatever you invested in is gone and you're gone forever. That's Ecclesiastes. Now, that means that your life is meaningless. The all is meaningless. Intro then to the Gospel of John where the Word, the meaning, becomes flesh and dwells among us. And He changes everything. And then this is the weird, strange joy that He gives. The joy of living a cruciform life. And the joy of staring into the abyss, okay, of it's all meaningless, and in a way, hawking a loogie into it. Because what else are you going to do? You may as well have fun. It's a giant abyss. What, none of you have been 12-year-old boys before? So... When Jesus says that even a, the reward for a cup of cold water that you hand which is nothing, right? It doesn't, he's not highlighting saying giving a cup of cold water is something profoundly special. He's just saying the least little thing that you do matters, has meaning, is cleansed by my blood, and as Revelation says, follows you. Now, this is the joy. This is the wonderful paradoxical joy. Okay? Because you're going to give, 
and I got in trouble for this. You're going to give um, that homeless guy $5. And what is screaming in your head? How wasteful, how meaningless. He's going to do it for evil. What's that $5? You're throwing good money after bad. He's not going to do a thing. It's not going to make a bit of difference. You know, all the voices of Ecclesiastes are roaring in your head. All right? And then Christ says, even giving a cup of cold water, your reward will not part from you. So you get to stare into the abyss of this stupid, dumb, little, good work. It doesn't mean anything, and it's worthless, and say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So you get to go into your dumb job tomorrow, and me too, okay? <laughs> Pastors aren't excluded from this, right? You get to put up with people, you get to put up with yourself, you get to put up with all the crap, all right? And you got all the voices of Ecclesiastes roaring in your ears. It's meaningless, this is stupid, this is worthless, this is curse. You remember that the love of God for you is made manifest in His Son. You remember what He has to say about all those meaningless things. I'll see to it that they're not meaningless. In fact, I'll see to it that they echo for eternity. Because their works follow them. That's the joy, the subversive joy. So when He says, eat, drink, and be merry... The account of the revelation of Christ, you can take that a little differently, right? As one who has no fear, as one who stares into the abyss and hawks a loogie, as one who looks at that person and says, this is the only thing I can do and it's worthless, I'm going to do it anyway. We'll see if God thinks it's worthless. Leave it in His hands. Okay, I'm sorry, I'd love to take your questions and comments, but I'm, I've already overspoken. The Lord be with you. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.